right, well, as we get into the sermon today, um, I want to do what I've done a couple times and take a step back and take stock of where we've been and where we're going today. So the sermon is arranged in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and I thought that if for any of those who, uh, of us who like to get a, an outline or a layout or, or a breakdown of how the sermon is structured, I want to just offer you guys some quick one-word summaries of the different sections of the Sermon on the Mount as I have structured them, as we have taught them. So uh, beginning in Matthew 5 and actually going back to our previous series, the first word that I would offer to you is blessing. That's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Then Jesus moves into a section where he challenges us to be salt and light and to shine into the darkness, to be a, a, something that is attractive to the world and also to project God's goodness and his mercy and his character onto the world. And then we took about three to four weeks to go through the next section on the law where Jesus recasts and extends the law, the instructions of God, where he talks about anger, he talks about lust, he talks about covenant marriage, he talks about honest speech, and finally, the highest level of challenge, enemy love, love of the enemies. And then he switches, and it's my opinion that the section that we just spent a few weeks on and today uh, are where Jesus gives us the tools to live out the sermon. And so we started talking about humility, and we spent three weeks talking about how spiritual activity, things like prayer, fasting, and giving can either be used to enhance our pride or to short-circuit our pride. And Jesus says, look, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't give so that you can be seen giving. Don't pray so that you can be seen praying. Don't fast so that you can be seen fasting. Do things in secret. And if you're here and you, you would say that you're on the front half of your spiritual journey, if you would say, I'm just getting into this thing of a life with God, let me tell you, that living a life of humility and embracing humility is probably one of the key first steps you can do. It's to just realize, you know what? I'm not all that. That there is something in life that is bigger than me and I'm going to choose to embrace it. Living a life of humility. And that today we're gonna deal with another essential tool in the spiritual toolbox and that's, a, that's the tool of trust. And if you can embrace humility and trust in your life, let me tell you, you're going to see awesome things happen. Spiritual life is not all that complicated. Humility, trust, are like skeleton keys that unlock all manner of crazy, cool, and good things. But before we get into what it looks like to trust Jesus, I want to talk to you about words. And I want to talk to you about a particular word. Uh, words don't stay static in our culture. Some words fall out of use over time, right? Sometimes they fall out of use because something is no longer relevant. Like, let me show you a picture of this. Anybody ever had one of these? Okay, what is it? Anybody ever had one? Okay. When's the last time you used the word Walkman in a sentence? Yeah, 20 years ago. Nobody uses Walkman anymore. Why? Because it's irrelevant. The technology, well, good for you. The technology has been made irrelevant by CDs, by 
I everything. I had one, you know. Nobody uses that. And so words sometimes stop meaning things because they're irrelevant. But sometimes words become irrelevant because they get used in such a way where they come to mean so many things that they start to mean nothing at all. Let me show you what I mean. When I was a kid, I used to go to the mall and I would go to the record store. And uh, when I went to the record store, when you went to the record store in the, in the mall, uh, you chose from like five categories of music, four categories of music. You had the rock category. You had country, which I never went to. You had soul and you had jazz. And then over in the corner, you had like classical, like two bins of classical. So it was like, sorry if that's your deal. So I would go to the rock area and I would thumb through looking for records and maybe you did too and so like maybe in the in the rock category you could find all kinds of things like this what is this Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon uh, you could flip through a little more and you could find this which is what Born in the USA come on people if you were me you know you'd find this yeah U2's war record. You know, can I be a little bit vulnerable with you guys? You might, you might find this. <laughs> Judas Priest screaming for vengeance. Still in the shrink wrap, might I point out. Have a couple more. This one too. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being vulnerable. Van Halen won. Great record. I'm sorry. If you don't know, you don't know. Oh, here's this going back. This is actually not mine. My sister bought this one. Anybody know this one? Elton John, Honky Chateau. It's a good record. And then one more. I'm just gonna. This is this. You get this one. You get this for nothing. This is this is no charge for this. This is Pete Townsend. Uh, it's called All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes, which I don't know what that means, but this is one of the best singer-songwriter records. Uh, if you're into music, pick it up. It's very hard to find. So if you went to the rock and roll category, you could find any of those, all of those. Ain't like that anymore. I read this week that there are over 1,200 genres, subgenres of rock and roll now. 1,200. Would you like to hear some of them? Sure you would. But not only that, I'm going to give you this too. Here's some subgenres of, of uh, before we get to rock and roll, this is subgenres of, of electronica or dance music. And I like some electronica, so this is cool. But listen to this. You got club or club dance, breakbeat, bro step, deep house, dubstep, electro house, exercise, garage, glitch hop. Hardcore, hard dance, 8-bit, ambient, baseline, chiptune. Chiptune, anybody? Some, okay. Okay. Crunk, uh, down tempo, drum and bass, electro, electro swing, electronica, electronic rock, hard style, IDM experimental, industrial, trip hop. I had a friend of mine once who was a really gifted electronic artist, and uh, this was years ago, and he said, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm experimenting with a new genre of music. And I was like, what is it? And he's like, it's electro burlesque. And I was like, what? 
And, and, and uh, he sent me an MP3, and it's literally like old-timey burlesque music set to like electronic beats. You guys ready for rock and roll? Okay. This is rock only. Acid rock, adult-oriented rock, Afro-punk, adult alternative, alternative rock, American trad rock, Anatolian rock, arena rock, art rock, Blues rock, British invasion, death metal, black metal, glam rock, gothic metal, hair metal, hard rock, metal, noise rock, jam bands, post-punk, prog rock, art rock, psychedelic, rock and roll, rockabilly, roots rock, singer-songwriter, southern rock, surf, text mess, and time lord rock. <laughs> so what does rock music mean anymore? Who knows? It's become something that really doesn't indicate anything. If I tell you I'm a rock musician, it doesn't tell you anything. And I, wanna, and I talk to you guys about that because there's a word that we toss around in the spiritual, uh, in the spiritual life and in church a lot. And, and, and I'm owning this. This may not be your journey, but it's my journey, and, I, and maybe it'll help you. The word that we throw around so much that I'm not sure what it means anymore or what it came to mean in my life is the word belief. That's kind of like a dull word. Like if you read the Bible, you find believe, 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 believe all the time. Believe, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. It's a really important word. But in my life, belief started to mean so many things that it started to mean nothing. And it started to become, when I started talking about, or when I heard people talk about believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. I, I grew up in the church, Right? And I, I wandered, and I've got a story that's worth telling outside of the church. But by and large, I, I always had God sort of in my rearview mirror or right alongside me. And so I could believe in Jesus all the time. But over the years of my life, what belief started meaning to me was like, did I think the right things about Jesus? Did I have all the right ideas about Jesus so that I could be forgiven and get into heaven? And I could believe in Jesus all day. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't trust him. Those two words are really related, but they're not the same. Believing in Jesus is not the same as trusting Jesus. Because for me, what belief meant was that I could have all the right ideas. I could think all of the right thoughts about Jesus. I could know an awful lot of this book. And I could speak the right language of church. But when I walked out the door of church and when I woke up, woke up Monday morning, I did not trust Jesus to have anything to say about my life. I didn't trust him to help me run my life. I believed in him. I did not trust him. Does anybody know exactly what I'm talking about? So I want to talk to you today specifically about what trust looks like and what trust looks like according to Jesus and what trust has looked like in my life because that's where Jesus starts to lead us in Matthew 6 and what I'm going to do is walk through the the words that he uses and that he says and talk to you and give you guys some thoughts and send some, some questions to just think about so we're going to start in Matthew 6 verse 19 um, and it's all on your Fridge fold. So I just invite you to mark that thing up if, if uh, words jump out to you and if you have questions. Jesus starts this way. 
He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So Jesus starts off this section of the sermon by basically saying, when you live your life, you're going to accumulate stuff. You're going to have the opportunity to acquire certain treasures. Sometimes it'll look like a bank account. Sometimes it'll look like a nice job. Sometimes it'll look like some kind of spiritual wisdom. And Jesus says here, don't store these treasures up on earth. And a lot of the sermon is just straight up good human wisdom. Because he says, look, anything on this earth, guess what? It fades. Anything on earth, thieves will break in to destroy them. Everything on earth is at risk. Things break. Things are lost. Things are stolen. Things fade. So he says, invest in things in heaven. But we need to pause on that word heaven. Because when we hear the word heaven in our context and after so many years of, of the church, uh, we think of the white puffy cloud place where people in togas live and strum harps in heaven. And nothing, nobody ever has any expressions except, well, praise Jesus. Which is fine, except that's not the way Jesus thinks of heaven. You see, our faith is the marriage, just to get into a little philosophy here, our faith is the marriage of two streams of thought. One is a Hebrew strain of thought, ancient Near East. Jesus is Jewish. His audience is Jewish. It's also a marriage of Greek thought, Plato, Socrates. And those two strains of thought looked at the world very differently. So to a Jew, to a Hebrew, heaven is not out there. Heaven does nothing to do with clouds. Eternal life and heaven were simply the place where God ruled. And to a Jew, heaven was firm. You could jump on heaven. You could pick things up in heaven. Maybe there was some harps but there were no clouds. They weren't floating around. Greek thought, heaven, eternity, a perfect perfection was out there away from, from things. And our faith, just to tell you guys, our faith is, is a marriage of those two strains of thought. And sometimes it's messy. But Jesus right here is not saying, take the things that you accumulate and push them off into the cloud zone. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's a way to live right now on this earth, in concrete ways that you put your treasures here. If you invest in things uh, that only have an earthly agenda, they will fade. It's the nature of life. I don't think Jesus is saying anything right now that we would go, oh, yeah. I mean, if, how many... How many people in this room have ever had like something that's important to them break? And you're like, oh, man, this is the nature of life. 
And then he says this. Where your treasure is, there's the desire of your heart as well. Anybody ever heard that? Maybe in another translation. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And again, this is where we hear another word. When you hear the word heart, what do you associate with the word heart? Just tell me. Love. What else? What? Beliefs. Devotion. Life. Intention. Heart to Jesus has nothing to do with soft, squishy feelings. It has nothing to do with Valentine's Day. To the ancients, you know what the heart was? The heart was the center of your will. The heart is the place that you made decisions. So when Jesus says, Where, wherever your treasure is, there's the desire of your heart, he was, he's telling you that where your treasure is, that's the way you will make decisions in your life. So to flip it around and, and, make, and help you understand, like, where are you investing your treasures? Let me give you this thought, that the consistent basis for your decision-making is probably where your treasure is. So if you make decisions consistently based on how do I enhance my bank account, your treasure might be your bank account. If you make decisions in your life consistently based on how do I make myself uh, more attractive to the opposite sex, how do I make decisions so that I can get a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, your treasure might be in other people or in your appearance. How do I get the next promotion at work? How do I get more power, more influence? Your treasure might be power and influence. You want to know where your treasure is? Think about when push comes to shove, how do you make decisions? And if that's where your treasure is, then Jesus is basically warning you, guess what? There's going to come a time where the promotion won't happen. There's going to come a time when the stock market will go down. Trust me. Thieves will come in. Moths will eat and destroy those treasures. So he goes on. And he weaves this wonderful thread through these words. So he moves on and he says, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your whole body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is using this metaphor that your eye uh, will focus on your treasure. And then he's developing this thought of when you look at something, it impacts your soul as well. When you stare at money an awful lot for too long, somehow it's not just a one-way thing where you stare at your money. Sometimes, somehow Jesus is saying that money gets into your soul. It's not just a one-way street, it's a two-way street. And Jesus is saying, look, if you focus on those earthly treasures too much, guess what? You're going to start focusing on them more and more, and your eye will bend that way. Your eye will bend constantly that way. And whether you like it or not, when you look at something too much, you will start to make decisions based on those treasures. In other words, he's basically saying, 
earthly focus will bend towards idolatry. You store up earthly treasures, you focus on them, you will almost inevitably start to make decisions on how to protect those treasures. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, you can't do it. They can't be protected. The nature of them is to fade. So how then do you live? He's getting there. But before he gets there, he presses this idea of of what happens when you focus too much on something that is destined to fade. He goes on in verse 29. He says, that's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them and aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon, in all his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So, uh, I preached on this about a year ago, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine after the message, and he said, well, you know, like you talked about uh, birds and, and how God takes care of the birds, but, you know, sometimes birds die. Like, sometimes cats eat birds. What do you do to that, you know? And he says, like, sometimes flowers get trampled. They're not always beautiful. And he's like, what do you, what do you think? And I said, I said, bro, I think, you're, I think you're taking Jesus' words a little too seriously here. All Jesus is trying to tell you is that, he's trying to use an example, say, look, we worry about so many things, but what if there's a God in heaven that cares for you? What if you've become so anxious about these earthly treasures that you've lost sight of the fact that there's another way to live? And it's based on the fact that there's a God who intimately cares for you. And that if you just look and stare at things that fade away, your anxiety level will go up because you're like, I've done everything I could. I, got, I saved everything I could. I did everything I could to get the promotion. I did everything I could to get the girl, to get the guy, to get the gig. And it faded away. Jesus is just saying, there's another way to live. That you don't have to look at that stuff. It might be there. You might get a nice paycheck. You might get a nice promotion at work. But you know, it doesn't mean it has to be the basis for your life. What if your basis of your life is that there's a God who takes care of you? So the thought for this is simply this, that earthly focus will always tend towards anxiety. You stare at stuff that fades, you're just waiting for the foot to drop. When will this be taken from me? Will there ever be enough? And, God, and Jesus says, you know what? Maybe there's another way to live. He wraps up this way. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. 
But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Then he closes this way. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Now, what Jesus is not saying is some kind of health and wealth prosperity thing. He's not literally saying, if you seek God's kingdom first, guess what? The car will come. The paycheck will come. What he's saying is that if you seek God's kingdom before all else, what you think you need will change. You will start living out of a different order of priorities. And the thing that you think you need won't be a need anymore. Because you'll be like, you know what? I don't feel so attached to this need because you know what? There's a God in heaven and he cares for me. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And I think all of us go, yes, amen, Jesus. And then we take a deep breath and we go, what does that mean? <laughs> seek the kingdom? And this is where sometimes maybe you've grown up in a church, I don't know, where the kingdom, again, we're back to the pink puffy clouds. Is the kingdom the clouds? Are we all going to toga land and getting harps again? Is that what the kingdom is? And Jesus would be like, you know, that's not the kingdom. Kingdom in Greek is the word basileia, okay? Kingdom is simply the place that God rules and reigns and governs. And you know what that means? You know where the kingdom can start? The kingdom can start with me because I want God to rule and reign and govern my life. The kingdom doesn't have to be out there. It doesn't have to be something that I create, that I manufacture. The kingdom can be something that starts in my life right here, right now. God says, seek God's reign in your life first and then watch your priorities change. And this is where it gets really, really cool because I started thinking, where does Jesus talk about kingdom again in, in this sermon? Where does he talk about living righteously? You know where he does? He talks about it in chapter 5, right as he's going into the way he talks about the law. He says, you have to live more righteously than the Pharisees. And then he says, when you live uh, this way, the way I'm laying out for you, the least in the kingdom are going to be greater than anybody else. And then what does he do? He says, how about living a life free of anger? How about living a life free of lust? How about living life in a covenant marriage? How about living life with honest speech? And how about living life by loving your enemies? And I want to suggest to you that that's where the kingdom starts. That when you want to seek the kingdom first, that's the life you seek. You seek a life free of anger, free of lust, covenant marriage, honesty, and loving your enemies. And then it gets real meta because after Jesus talks about the law, what does he say? He says, here's some tools to do the law. Get rid of your pride. When you get rid of your pride and you live life in humility, it helps you live life free of anger, which helps you live life free of lust, which helps you live life free 
of manufacturing speech. And then he also says, here's this thing called trust. And it, you know what it becomes? It becomes like a, a circle that like the more you live according to the kingdom of God and his values, the more it enables you to live in humility and trust. And the more you live in humility and trust, the more it enables you to live in the kingdom's values. And it just becomes this spiral. So you know what, you know what it means to seek first the kingdom? It's just to go, I want to seek a life based on the values of Jesus. And everything else will be added unto you because you'll figure out, you know what? Things change a lot in my life when I'm not angry anymore. Things change a lot in my life when I, when I don't want to use people for my sexual gratification. Things change in my life a lot when I can just say yes and no, when I'm committed in covenant to other people, and when, oh my gosh, could it ever be that I could sit down with my enemy and I could embrace them? Boy, things change in your life an awful lot when you do that. And it all starts with humility and trust. So I want to ask you uh, a couple questions. The first question is this. How much anxiety are you willing to tolerate in your life? I believe we live in a pretty anxious culture. And some of that is not our choice. But sometimes our anxiety stems from the fact that we've been looking at our pile of earthly treasures way too much, waiting for it to fade, waiting for the thieves to come in, waiting for the moths to destroy it. And I think what Jesus says here sometimes is, you know what, it's up to us to just turn our attention away from the earthly stuff and into a deeper way of living. So how's it working for you? How much anxiety are you willing to tolerate in your life? The second question, what treasure do you tend to trust? And this is one of these things where I'm like, hmm, don't lie to Pastor Eric. It's not time for the, for the Sunday school answers. Because if you think that I don't have treasures that I tend to trust and it's not a battle for me, guess what? You got a way elevated view of me, which I appreciate. <laughs> it's not true. What tre treasures do you tend to trust? And again, just think about it. When push comes to shove, how do I make my decisions? That'll tell you what your treasure is. And this is not about shaming you. It's not about saying you are an awful person because, oh my gosh, you have a battle in your life of trusting God. Because we all do. Man, if faith was easy, we would all just be like walking around, levitating off the ground or something. It's not easy. It's just, it's just a matter of being honest with yourself and with other people. Go, I got a problem. I'm driven by money. Money's my security. I mean, like, I know people that say that. And that's great. Like, just be honest so you can fight the battle and walk the walk. And then the last question I want to ask you is this. What might trust look like in your, in your life? What might trusting God look like? And to help you on this, I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to share a little about my life, okay? I'm going to be a little bit honest. I'm going to tell you what my treasures are, okay? I'm going to tell you about three of my treasures, because I have treasures that would curl your toes. So we're going to share the Sunday, the Sunday ones. My first treasure is music. My first earthly treasure is music. 
I trust music. I work my butt off to trust that. It's my earthly treasure. It always will be because it's a place that I know that I can do well. What might trust look like? Trusting God over music. Hmm. Well, I can tell you. Um, I, there's, a, there's a gig that I, I've done. It used to come up every three years. I've done it for like 12, 15 years. And this year was the first year. Um, it's every summer, it's summer, around July, every three years. And it's a, man, it's a great gig. It's like thousands of people. It's in a big arena. I get on a big stage. I can like play the big amps, the big guitars. It's a week long. I get a nice paycheck at the end of it. This year, I got a, an, an email from my friend who, who runs it, and he said, hey, want you to come to the gig. Don't want you on stage. Earthly treasure, anxiety through the roof. Oh, man, I'm old. Trust God. God, I'm more than a musician. God, I'm more than fingers playing and I'm more than voices singing. So I don't, go, I don't get the gig this, this, this time. God, that's okay, because I'm still a dad. I'm still a husband. God, I trust that you have things for me to do in Tallahassee that are just as important as things to do at that gig. That's what trust looks like. My first instinct is to, oh, take a breath. Who's God? Who am I? Okay. Another one of my treasures, earthly treasures, curiosity and knowledge. Oh, I like being smart. I got four more classes. Yeah. I have the letters after my name. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? You could take doctor. I like master. Mark can be doctor, but can, you, know, you guys can feel free to call him master Eric. That's fine. Look, 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 look. I love it when people come up to me. When people come up to me and they say, Eric, I have a question about the Bible. I have a question about God. Oh, oh, I love it. I love it. Right, but what happens? Because it happens. We're like someone's like, I gotta, I'm going to ask Pastor Dan about the Bible. <laughs> I want to be asked. My earthly treasure, I'm obsessed with this thing. I'm obsessed with God. I think about him all the time. I want to be the guy that gets asked that. You know what trust looks like? Trust, trust. And I don't, I don't have all the answers. I'm probably not even right half the time. <laughs> these, these people deserve to ask Dan a question. And Dan is wise. And God I don't need to be the guy that the world revolves around because, God, I'm bigger than my curiosity. I'm more important to you than the things I know. That's what trust looks like. Your first instinct is always going to be for the earthly treasure. You got to take a breath. <sighs> Who's God? Who am I? Then the last thing, real quick. Um, years and years ago, about 16 years ago, uh, my first church I was working at. I didn't know anything. 
somebody pulled me aside and they said, Eric, you're a leader. I said, what's a leader? And they said, it's a person that moves people down the, you move the ball, you know? You make things happen. I said, okay, that sounds good. I like being a leader. I like being the center of attention. I like sitting in a room and having people all turn to me and go, what should we do, Eric? And I'm like Moses with the shining face, and I'll be like, the Lord says, (laughs) earthly treasure. I like being the center of attention. It's just the truth about me. It ain't pretty, but it's true. But I don't know if you guys know this, but I work with some pretty gifted men and women at this church, and I don't always get asked. My opinion doesn't always get asked. Earthly treasure says, why won't they ask me? Like, I know better. I've done this. I've done that. Trust says, boy, the world doesn't revolve around me. Trust says, I I work with such gifted people. I don't need to speak up here. I can be silent because somebody else probably knows. Trust looks like me saying, God, I'm here to serve you and to serve my brothers and sisters, not to cultivate more attention and more earthly treasures because they're just gonna fade sometime. That's the way I try to live my life. I wanna talk about one more thing as the band comes back out. That's what we call in this business a cue. So you might be here, and it's, it's very easy for me to say, to, for me to think that like, you know what, we're all here and we're all willing to trust God because he's God. Don't lie to me. I know there's people in this room right now who's like, why should I trust God? Like, let's not pretend. Like, some of us are further down this journey. We're like, you know what? God's trustworthy. He's my father in heaven. I get that. But I also know that there's people in this room who are like, you know what? I ain't buying it. I ain't buying it. So I want to say two things to you. One, my invitation to you is to just dip a toe in for a few weeks. Just say, you know what? I'm going to check God out. I'm not going to make it a make it or break it Sunday, today, or maybe next time. I'm going to commit to this thing and see what God, see who God is, and maybe I'll learn to trust him. The second thing I would say to you is I just want to plant a thought in your mind. Jeremiah 29 is a wonderful passage of scripture. And the Bible scholar in me says, Eric, you're about to radically misuse this scripture. Because it's about a group of people. It's about the nation of Israel in crisis. But I want to tell you why I trust God. And this scripture about sums it up. Because God writes to his people and he says, huh, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. That's why I trust God. I don't know everything there is to know about God. I never will. But I believe just enough to say he knows better than I do. And he has good things for me. 
even if I don't get the gig, even if I don't get asked all the questions, even if I'm not the center of attention. And he wants that for you 